Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about tabletop role-playing games, tabletop war games, and board games. I'm your host, Troy, pronouns he, him. And today, I'm Professor Ed. My pronouns are they and them. Welcome to History of Warfare 201. My office hours are Saturdays, 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. And the first question that we need to ask is war. What is it really good for? Anyone? Well, yes, that's right. Today we're talking about ASL, American Sign Language. Wait, no, that's not right. The correct answer was actually nothing. I would have also accepted giving me an existential crisis as an acceptable answer. I would say that war is good for gaming. Yeah, more or less. We could probably do a whole episode about the quote, ethics of wargaming, but I would probably need to do a lot more actual reading to talk about that. You can't have civilian casualties in a wargame if there are no civilians in your wargame. I mean, yeah, that's gonna come up in this episode. Alright, but before we get into Advanced Squad Leader, a classic of the wargaming genre, we have a thing we like to call the Weekend Hobby. Yay. So Ed, what have you done this Weekend Hobby? I've been rooting around through all of my ASL stuff to get ready for this episode and feeling incredibly depressed that it's been at least a year and a half since I last played a game uh, between the pandemic and work and school. Just haven't had as much time to play as I did previously. Still working on Missile Threat, making some good progress on all my little tiny planes. I used some pipe cleaners to make some missiles that turned out pretty well and been working on some stuff with my 3D printer to do a game of either Zona Alpha or This Is Not a Test, whatever we decide we like better to do a Chernobyl-themed war game, since I am pathologically incapable of sticking to one project, despite the entirety of my Infinity Collection sitting on my desk begging to be painted. Get in the zone! Exclusion zone! Yep. I'm sure there's also a lot of vehicles there. You can just take those vehicles, you know. Nobody tells you that. Yeah, those are free. All you need is a tractor. Yep. Uh, In the last week, I have run two Everon games. Those are going good. Had a chat with the Warlocks patron where he patronized them. And then went through a quick little dungeon with plant monsters to recover the flower that they needed to get a remove curse potion made to get rid of the lycanthropy on the paladin. Good little dungeon. Nice, simple door puzzles with a classical element-themed thing where there are pillars with four symbols on Each one has a symbol on it. There's four pillars. And then each door has a, like, set of symbols on it with one in the center and the others around the edge. And so all you need to do is figure out which element is that door and the pillars help with this and then essentially hold that element up to the door to open it. There was a fire door, a water door, and an earth door. I think you're missing a few elements from that periodic table. Well, I mean, I was said I was using the classical elements. Maybe throw a cello in there then. What's the difference between a violin and a viola? Um... I probably knew this joke at some point, but have since forgotten it. A viola holds less beer. 
That's that's the extent of my classic knowledge. But yeah, so that was fun. It was simple enough of a puzzle that it didn't take them four hours to figure it out. Always good. I've made more complicated puzzles in the past, and people have overthought it. So in this case, it was... The, uh, having a puzzle that is four symbols, and there's a bunch of stuff scattered around that sort of lets them test theories, is, I think, one of the best ideas for D&D puzzles. Come on, man. This is this is like elementary school stuff. The square goes in the square hole. The circle goes in the circle hole. It's easy. Yeah, that 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 kind of stuff is basically what you need to do for D and D puzzles, based on my experience. The more complicated it is, the longer it's going to take, and the less fun it's going to be for the players because they want something that they can figure out and makes them feel smart. Shit, it's a differential equation. My math teacher was right. Yeah, I would... Yeah. My character in the only game they are playing a character is a barbarian who would look at it and go, Rage doesn't help me here. And leave. I will cleave this math equation in twain. Yeah, that that sounds about right. My other party did a... Uh, is in the process of performing a counterintelligence operation where they have isolated three different members of the staff of the organization they're working for who may have been leaking information and are performing a series of... Basically, each one of these people was tasked with setting up a certain part of a journey, and they're trying to determine which section they get attacked on, because that's who would have been leaking information. They got through the, like, wandering the streets and taking a boat ride section without being attacked and are on the lightning rail section. And the session ended with them going to sleep, one of them having gotten drugged by the person they're trying to check on. And a group of undead swooping down on giant bats. Does that lightning rail run on AC or DC power? It runs on elemental power, so, um... What are lightning bolts? Direct current? Uh, yes. I answered my own question. Yeah. So, it runs on whatever lightning bolts are. Unless you have, like, a magnetism elemental, I guess they would generate AC current. Yeah, but I, I'm guessing AC current generated by magnet elementals isn't going to be consistent enough to run trains and stuff. We can We can try. And then in my Sprawl campaign, the cyberpunk crew was hired to recover a truck of weapons stolen by a gang and uh, eliminate the member of that gang responsible for stealing those weapons. They located the truck in an abandoned industrial warehouse place. They like set up an ambush to deal with the people outside. The infiltrator snuck in and then... The soldier got in there and started, like, opening fire and, and and basically rolling poorly. And they returned fire, and the infiltrator stole the truck and, like, busted out of there in a spectacular fashion. While the soldier got pinned down and kept failing his attempts to escape. So it ended with the rest of the gangsters showing up before they could leave with the truck. Them successfully killing the guy who had stolen it, but having to, like, 
have a car chase, abandon the truck, and the soldier who was caught inside got killed. Whoopsie-daisy. Cyberpunk. It can get gritty and violent. That's how you know it's real cyberpunk and not, like, post-cyberpunk stuff. That's where the punk is. High-tech, low-life. It's all that chrome. Um, so, yeah, it was... It, it was the player's choice that his character would die rather than um, get captured or have some other serious consequence. Which is something I kind of like about the set, the system for that. Which we'll talk about Powered by the Apocalypse at some point, and maybe the Sprawl specifically. Uh, presumably we'll talk about the Sprawl specifically when we do our episode on cyberpunk role-playing game systems. Yay! And that was my weekend hobby. Alright, so we're talking today about Advanced Squad Leader, a war game in which you are a squad leader and you only move forward or advance. Not one step back. Exactly. So tell me, how does how advanced is this squad leader? I would say it's pretty advanced. Um, the rule book was written specifically to resemble a legal document. It's about the size of a college textbook, probably bigger, and about twice as dense. But there's a reason for it. So, yeah, it, it actually helps a lot with playing the game the way that they have the rulebook written. Um, since it's basically written like a reference book, it makes things a lot easier to find than compared to, like, trying to go back and forth through pages like we tend to do playing Infinity. Okay. So, if you're able to reference, like, specific passages in the book, specific lines, keywords, all that, it actually makes the game a lot more playable than it looks at the outset. I actually got started in this game by one day searching on Google, quote, most complicated board game. And this is the first, uh, <laughs> yes, this is the first hit that it gave me. And I was like, oh, this is actually interesting. So I ended up with a starter kit for it in 2017. And yeah, pretty much been playing it more or less ever since. Just kind of with that break in between due to life. So Advanced Squad Leader, it comes out of the Hex Encounter genre of war games, uh, which got its start in the 60s and 70s, usually involves some kind of map with a hex overlay on it, and then you have little tiny counters that represent your various troops, AFVs, ships, airplanes, whatever kind of game you're playing. And for a long time, that was war gaming. This was before we had uh, some of the more streamlined, lighter war games or tabletop miniature war games, really. And they were known for being pretty well-researched, generally fairly complicated, in-depth rules. And so in 1977, Avalon Hill came out with a game called Squad Leader, which was the first game in the series, and it was composed of four parts. There was the base squad leader, and then you had... We would call them expansions now, but the, at the time they called them gamettes, which I think is a good word that needs to come back. There's Cross of Iron, Crescendo of Doom, and Anvil of Victory, and each one added new elements, new nationalities, new scenarios, and whatnot to the game. 
Was Crescendo of Doom about invading Latveria? Uh, Crescendo of Doom, I believe, was the Italians. No. You need to invade Latveria. Get the Fantastic Four on your team. Yeah, I could, I could go with that one. So by 1985, uh, the game was very popular, um, but with the way that they released the game and these little tiny expansions, you had a lot of contradictory rules, uh, some power creep, things that just didn't quite work, and they tried to kind of smooth out some of these rough edges, but eventually they just decided, you know what, we're just going to do a whole new version of the game. So they came out with Advanced Squad Leader, which had the cleanup rules it had a lot more depth so uh, in the original squad leader you had maybe a dozen or so uh, armored vehicles for the german army when advanced squad leader came out you had 99 afvs for the german army alone (laughs) so they added a lot more units a lot more equipment new vehicles and did a lot to enhance the tactical and historical depth of the game it was pretty controversial at the time. A lot of people didn't like it, but there were also a lot of people who did. Um, it's the same thing you see now anytime there's any kind of edition change for any game now. By now, the game covers every major theater of land warfare in World War II and represents almost every nation that provided any significant uh, combat elements in both Europe and Asia. Um, I don't think there's any contribution really from South America. Um, There's only one African nation that's Ethiopia makes an appearance. Somebody has to lose to the Italians. Pretty much. I mean, they're, they have units that are armed with spears, but also at the time, the Italian army. Yeah, they, they weren't 100% boned, but if you actually read the history of the war, uh, you'll know that it didn't end well for them. I mean, they they were still being haunted by the ghost of Luigi Cadorna, right? Yeah, I could I could go with a, a Luigi Cadorna counter. Just randomly eliminates units. <laughs> Just randomly redirects your units to the Asanzo River. Yep. So yeah, it covers pretty much every every major nation, um, even if they don't get their own dedicated expansion or set of counters they'll have some kind of rules um where they're represented by other nations the british counters tend to get a lot of traction out of minor nations there's a little bit of air combat usually some kind of close air support it's not super in-depth but there are some third-party rules that give a lot more uh depth to that if you choose to do so And by the late 80s, early 90s, Advanced Squad Leader had become one of the big three hobby games, along with Dungeons & Dragons and Starfleet Battles from the Amarillo Design Bureau. Never heard of either of those. Clearly, they must not have lasted. No, I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think those caught on. Advanced Squad Leader did, because it's still here in 2022. Oh, does it have a whole new selection of like really fantastic art and a wide player base um, with more and more diverse and like new people getting involved? If by good art you mean one really excellent painter who does good art, and by wide player base you mean 
uh, old white retired men with money to burn, then yes. That that's not what I meant, but okay. <laughs> that's not a slide to the player base. Uh, it's just the audience that, for whatever reason, is the audience that plays this game. Anyway, in 1999, uh, the original company, Avalon Hill, that made it, they sold the game off to a combination of Hasbro and Multiman Publishing, who is still producing the game to this day. Um, we're in the second edition of the rules, and there's about 15 core modules. There's Beyond Valor, which is the Eastern Front and features the Germans and the Soviets with a little sprinkling of... Uh, Finnish soldiers in there. Uh, Yanks, which has Murricans, the true winners of World War II. Yeah. Those two are the ones that you really need to play the game in its entirety. With that, you know, you'd have a lot of a lot of traction on this game. Uh, King and Country is United Kingdom and all of its associated uh, Imperial holdings and Commonwealth nations. Hollow Legions features my favorite belligerent, the Italians. And also the Ethiopians. Rising Sun is Japan and China. Croix de Guerre is France and uh, Free French. Doom Battalions is allied minor nations. So you have like the Netherlands, uh, Belgium, Greece. I think there's a couple of others that I'm forgetting. That's one of the few expansions that I don't have because it's currently out of print. Poland, maybe? Uh, yes, Poland is in there. Um, Poland actually has their own third-party module, which I really want, but it's expensive, and it needs, like, two other expansions made by uh, that particular manufacturer, so someday I'll get to it. Uh, there's Armies of Oblivion, which is the Axis minor nations, so you have, like, uh, Bulgaria, Hungary, Croatia, all that. Seriously? You can't fool me. Armies of Oblivion clearly, you know, is an Elder Scrolls add-on. I mean, honestly, every time I see the name, that's what I think of. Yeah, like, do, do what do you get? Like, um... You get a Hero of Kavach counter. Oh, and the Dramora, and, like, the Oblivion gates open, and rush out and get machine gunned down. Yep, and no matter how strong your units are, uh, your enemies will be just as strong, if not stronger, through the entire game. It's really annoying. Well, I mean, I guess that's a like decent leveling mechanism and definitely doesn't hurt any form of roleplay or storytelling. Nope, definitely doesn't. And then uh, you've got Hakapale, which covers the Winter War. It has the uh, Finns. I want that one to go back into print because I'd like to do some uh, Finland action. And then the kind of weird outlier is Forgotten War, which covers the Korean War and is quite interesting because you get a little bit of advances in technology and that's pretty much where the game stops because once you get beyond the korean war modern warfare changes so much that the game system they've created isn't really the best for simulating that type of warfare so you get up to you know 1953 and that's your lot uh there's a lot of Third-party expansions that are made in conjunction with uh, multi-man publishing, and just the amount of stuff is ridiculous. Um, I've got one that's about the Allied invasion of Sicily. Um, I can't see any others here on my shelf off the top of my head. I did get one that was specific to the Italians. 
um, before they did the reprint for the Italian module. Um, and then they also have what they call historical modules that are based on specific battles or even like days of specific battles. Um, all the, all the scenarios in the game are based on real life events, but the historical modules take that and turn it up to 11. They use, uh, a lot of primary sources, uh, photographs, things like that to recreate maps as they actually look. So you have like uh, Red Factories, which covers the Battle of Stalingrad, um, specifically the Battle of the Red Barricades uh, factory. And so they used aerial photographs that the Germans took to <clears throat> recreate a map of this one particular factory along the Volga River. And you can see where they have like debris piles that are there in the photographs and all that. It's pretty cool. And the amount of research that goes into this game is beyond ridiculous. Uh, there's also Hatton and Flames, which covers uh, one of the operations in Alsace-Lorraine, where the Germans tried to distract the Americans away from uh, the uh, Battle of the Bulge, tried to do a little bit of a feint that didn't quite work. So yeah, there's a lot of content for this game, and if you've got the money, the time, and the inclination, this could be the only game that you ever play, and you would probably never run out of stuff. Yeah, so based on our discussion in our first episode about gamism, narrativism, simulationism. This sounds like a simulationist game, first and foremost. Yep, it is a simulation. Uh, simulation and historicity trumps everything, and depending on your point of view of gaming, that could be to a fault. But it is very much rooted in simulation, there's been some attempts at making starter kits that kind of ease you into the game. That's how I got in. Uh, they ease back on some of the rules and whatnot. But that is the one glaring fault with this game is that there is absolutely no ease of access. Um, it's expensive. The community is rather small. And to really get a good handle on the game, you need some kind of mentor who's willing to teach you how to play because you can read through it. But starting from zero can be incredibly difficult. I just happen to be lucky that uh, we have a local group here that plays pretty regularly and they were willing to walk me through the game. And, you know, the more you play, the more experience you get. So good times. Good times indeed. So talk a little about the mechanics of the game. We've talked about, you know, the content and we've talked about the little of the history. So so how does the game work? Do you how do you paint up a bunch of miniatures and send your hordes of um, American soldiers charging at the Nazis? Um, there are certain people who have a specific brand of insanity that will do that with six millimeter mini miniatures. It's incredibly impressive, but I don't think I'd be able to undertake that task despite my love for miniature wargaming. Um, they actually did try to do an official, like, miniature-specific rule set for it, but it never really caught on. So people just make their own little 6mm miniature counters, and they show up as, like, display pieces at conventions and whatnot every once in a while. The main mechanic for the game is rolling a pair of dice, uh one red, one white, and you want to roll low. The lower the number, the better. Uh, snake eyes, pretty much the best roll you can get. The mechanics are 
kind of like an abstraction of time rather than the actions that you're taking being, I am doing this thing and that is my round. The way that the actions work is that it's an element of time. And so your action that you're trying to take can take more, more time, the more complicated thing that you're trying to do. It's, I don't know why I still have trouble explaining it, but it is, it's, it's different from, it's different from a more traditional war game or not, I guess, less traditional because this one came first, but you'd say it's different from something like Warhammer where everybody acts on their own and then somebody else acts to follow them. Where in this case, the difference is you make that action and that essentially sets your unit out of play until a certain amount of time has passed. And that amount of time can be different depending on the action. Kind of. Cause the idea is that everything in the game is taking place within a short span of time. Um, each turn is supposed to represent maybe about a minute, probably less. Um, so everything in theory is kind of taking place all at the same time. So for example, if you have guys who are leaving a building, it's going to take them two movement factors to get out of that building. As they're doing that, the guys in the building across from them will shoot at them, which will leave additional firepower in that square in the form of residual fire. So as more guys file out of that building, it's going to take them two movement factors, which means they're going to take two more hits from that same firing group because it's supposed to be the amount of time that they're taking out that they're taking to get out of that building is exposing them to more fire. So it's a, it's a unit of time rather than using time as just kind of like a bookkeeping thing of like, who's doing what it's an attempt to try and create simultaneous action. I wish I had a better way of describing it. There's probably better players out there who can describe it better than me. No, that makes sense. But your your order of battles made of uh, squads, which is supposed to be about ten dudes, half squads, which is five leaders and heroes, which are individuals, and then you have crews who are uh, obviously crewing big guns, support weapons, vehicles, and whatnot. Um, you have geomorphic map boards, which are pretty cool. Um, the way that they're made, they will almost always all fit together, no matter how you put them to create one continuous battlefield, um, unless there's something like a very large like wheat field along one side, or if you're trying to combine two theaters of war, uh, they might not line up quite as well. But the amount of maps that you can make is ridiculous. And you can simulate just about any kind of battlefield um, that your heart could desire, or you could find in your nightmares, depending on your own views of warfare. Uh, games are played by scenario. Each side has an objective that will let them win. Uh, there's an attacker and a defender. Um, they're all based on real events and more or less historical recreations um, for the just the generic scenarios, the ones that aren't the historical modules. They'll be like, yeah, this you know combination of map boards looks vaguely like this area. Um, for some of the Stalingrad battles, the map is just nothing but buildings. And it's like, yeah, Stalingrad was nothing but ruins and buildings. We don't need to go into super detail, you know, like where all the rubble is and all that. 
you save that for the uh, historically research stuff. So the historical research and more or less historical accuracy is probably the biggest drawing point for me. There's some debates about how things are represented, because obviously in a game you can't represent history one-to-one, particularly when it comes to like the Italians and the SS. There's some controversy about how they are presented. Italians are generally pretty bad across the board, but if you actually read into the history of the Italian army... uh, They were generally pretty bad across the board? They were pretty bad across the board. Their army was essentially their army from World War One when it started. But at the very beginning of the war, when they were in North Africa, their armored vehicles were kind of on par with the stuff that they were fighting from the Brits. But then by, you know, 1942, things haven't gone well. Stuff's gone haywire. They're fighting really badly, except for uh, the Italian units that were fighting on the Eastern Front, which did really well. And then by 1943, they've surrendered and you have, you know, Italians that are fighting for the Axis, Italians that are fighting for the Allies. And it there's a lot of nuance in there that's hard to do game-wise. SS are a little bit more cut and dry. For some reason, they're given kind of like an extra pedestal up in terms of them being like an elite unit. They get their own special black counters for some reason. And it just kind of feeds into the weird glorification of the SS as some kind of like myth- mythological unit. But in reality, I believe I believe the term for it is wearaboo. Yeah, wearaboo. Um, but in reality, the SS really weren't that much better than the Wehrmacht. They were a little bit better equipped. And the only real difference is that they were just absolute fanatics. They were, you know super 100% into the Nazi ideology and they are willing to fight harder and take more losses than just the regular German army. But by the time Stalingrad gets around, they're literally taking anyone and their opa who can hold a gun. So it's more or less historically accurate, but there's debates to be had within the community about how well they actually pull that off. The gameplay mechanics are pretty deep. Um, The research and the setting Um, informs the historical tactics. So if you have a knowledge of how armies at the time actually fought and what they would do, those tactics work. Unlike a lot of other war games where, you know, you might try something that's like, oh yeah, this kind of ambush will work, but because modern like miniature war games or war games that are much lighter on the rules have a lot of abstraction thrown in there, uh, that strategy might not work. But if you have a grasp of how militaries fight in World War II, yeah, you'll probably do pretty well. I do better than average in advanced squad leader compared to pretty much any other war game. What do you mean my tanks just can't just run in? I'm gonna Leroy Jenkins this. (laughs) Uh, No, they don't need infantry support. They're just gonna run in there. It depends. If you're playing Blazing blazing Chariots in uh, North Africa and it's just all tanks all the time, you don't need any infantry support. But uh, those tanks will go up in flames like nobody's business. Or if you're trying to play as Imperial Japan in the Philippines, um, any G.I. Joe with something stronger than a grenade is going to be able to fold those Japanese tanks like a cheap suit. 
Yes, we fold them a thousand times like samurai swords. Uh, the game's also got a really dedicated community, uh, lots of third-party support, and I guess second to the historical accuracy, that's the thing I like the most. I don't find a whole lot of negativity or drama within the community, and I think that's a function of it being so small, is that you don't want to be a, a dick because you're probably going to run into that person at the next tournament, or you're going to see him on a forum or something like that. So, you know, everybody's generally pretty nice to each other. The bad, like I said earlier, absolutely no ease of access. Um, it takes a, you've really got to want it to get into this game. And you've got to have that same weird dad thing that goes on where all of a sudden you're either really into the Civil War or World War II. Uh, I fell onto the World War II side of that coin. Um, and like I said, the community is small and it's a very niche interest. Um, I'd like to see just a general expansion of the audience, but I don't, I'm not smart enough to figure out how to really do that. I have a feeling World War II is the kind of thing that just appeals to old white guys, even though I think everybody should have a good understanding and depth of knowledge on the subject. I feel like a the, the understanding and depth of knowledge on the subject that people should have in general is more of a like historical and political context and not perhaps the level of war game knowledge. Yeah, this is this is all about the toys. This is doing the fighting in World War II. Um, all of the human rights issues and civilians are almost completely ignored, which... I mean, yeah, you don't really want to be bummed out by the Holocaust while you're playing your war game, but then you have to realize that, you know, either you or the guy across from you is playing as the SS, and that's a circle that I really don't know how to square. I think you square it by always playing on the Italian front. The way that I've kind of come to get around that issue, I guess, is that rather than just being like, oh, yeah, this is World War II, and it was just fighting between a bunch of really cool armies. Um, I try to make sure that I also read the other half, the depressing half, about all the war crimes that was going on. Um, and it doesn't necessarily always make for fun reading, but it does help inform my understanding of the game and you know what was going on at this time. Uh, my favorite scenario, actually, in the game is about the... Warsaw Ghetto and the SS are loading up people into trucks to drive them out of the city for a very horrible fate. And you, one player plays as Jewish rebels who start out hiding up on the rooftops with Molotov cocktails, and you've got to try and stop the trucks from leaving the city. It's a really good scenario, and one of the thing, one of the other things that I like about Advanced Squad Leader is that it doesn't just play the greatest hits of World War II. Um, especially when you get into some of the deeper, more obscure expansions, you get a lot of stuff from battles that occur like in the Baltics or the Balkans um, that aren't necessarily as well known, but are just as interesting. Um, so yeah, human rights and civilians are pretty much entirely ignored. Um, I only know of other one other scenario that was produced by a third party um, on the Italian front where the Americans are trying to protect a girl's school um, from, I 
think it's the Germans. I don't remember if it's the Italian allied Germans at that point still. Um, but you had to protect the civilians that are inside this building and it comes with some civilian counters and in kind of a cheeky move that I found humorous on one side of the civilian counter, you have, uh, women dressed in like, you know, 1940s European clothing. And on the other side, they're wearing like cheeky schoolgirl uniforms, which was good for a laugh, but you know, it's very much directed at that old white male audience. Um, as far as the future of the game. Like I said, it probably needs a younger, more diverse audience, but it still is going strong. They're, they've been reprinting their modules like nuts. Um, I, when I started out in 2017, pretty much nothing was available except for uh, Beyond Valor and Yanks. Everything else is out of print, but I've got almost a complete collection of the uh, core games in the meantime, which is pretty sweet because I was really disappointed that I couldn't get some of these other interesting modules uh, starting out. Um, also, there's uh, Vassal Virtual Advanced Squad Leader, which has also been expanded out to pretty much every other war and tabletop game out there. But it allows you to play uh, the game via the Vassal engine over your computer, which for me has been a lifesaver. Because this game takes so long to play, being able to save the game and come back to it another day is amazing. You don't have to leave like any counter setup or anything that's going to get mussed up by your cat or, you know, a Roomba dragging the map off the table or something like that. Um, that was what got me through a lot of the early quarantine for coronavirus. I was out for about a month and a half because I was sick uh, right at the very beginning and one of the members of our game group, we played um, the first scenario from Red Factories and playing about five hours a day, five days a week. It still took us about a month to run through that entire scenario just on its own. So it can, it can go from, you know, a game that you guys play in an afternoon to one that literally takes an entire month to finish just one mission. So there's a huge amount of scale, uh, just depending on what you want to play. There's a lot of people who don't like to use vehicles because vehicles have a very different rule set from infantry. Some people like to do just infantry, and that's what they're fine with. So as long as you have an interest in World War II, there's probably going to be something here for you. One thing I would like to see is maybe looking a little bit prior to uh, 1936, I think is when the first missions start with uh, the invasion of China by Japan would really like to see a module dedicated to the Spanish civil war. Cause that was basically the beta test for all the tactics and all the equipment that was going to be used at the start of the war. And I think it would be a, a good bookend to uh, forgotten war. You know, you have the very early start in the Spanish civil war and then just kind of cover every conventional conflict going up until Korea. I think that would be a good span of time for this game to run. Yeah, that would be a, an interesting one. Plus, you could get like a Hemingway token. So, yeah, that's that's Advanced Squad Leader. Um, there's a lot of information out there on the internet. Uh, Desperation Morale is one of the big websites. Um, there's a lot of stuff on Board Game Geek. There's a, another podcast uh, that I listen to called The Two Half Squads, which is dedicated entirely to Squad Leader. 
they go really deep into the weeds and they're just funny dudes to listen to. So, uh, Jeff and Dave, if you somehow have come across this podcast, hi, someday I'll, uh, meet you in person. I can shake your hands at a convention. Yes. And someday I may actually play this game. If you drag me kicking and screaming into it, presumably with the promise of playing something else later. Yeah, we, we could probably start with, uh, some of the starter kit scenarios that are, they're pretty easy. The first one that I was taught with, it has like, I think six Americans and like 10 German units. And you're trying to seize control of this town and it's pretty easy. I think each side has one support weapon. So it's one of those things where, you know, you just start small and just kind of grow from there and, I mean, if it's not your thing, it's not your thing. There's a lot of other war games out there. Just, I like the amount of crunch on this one. So yeah, if you want, play Advanced School Odd Leader, or don't. It's your choice. It's, I'm not going to tell you how to play your games. Advanced Squad Leader will tell you on its own how to play the game. It's got a lot of rules. We've gone over this. That is very true. Um, the one saving grace for that, though, is that you will... 90% of the time, you will only be using 10% of the rules. So, as long as you get down the the very basics of infantry combat and how the system works, you're probably going to be fine. And it's totally acceptable to be like, hold on, I need to check such and such rule in the rulebook. And usually both players will pull out the rulebook and, you know, we'll look for the answer together because then you both know the answer. And so when it comes up again you may not need to ask the question or you're doing something that's incredibly obscure tunnels in the Pacific theater come to mind. Tunnels are a weird rule that only gets used in certain scenarios and can be annoying. So it's totally acceptable to be like, I have never used this before, or I have only used this once. Let's go ahead and reference that. So I do that in Dungeons and Dragons all the time. Yeah. If you're referencing rules in Dungeons and Dragons, it's not any different. So, it's, it's very playable. It's just you have to change your thinking a little bit about what it means to be playing the game because it's, it leans so heavily on that simulation aspect of it. And they even have a kind of a rule zero written in. They call it the fog of war, where if you realize that you made a mistake in a calculation or you forgot something, that don't go back and argue with it. Just keep the game moving. Because, you know, the fog of war, weird shit happens. You know, that shot that probably shouldn't have hit if you did the calculation correctly. Maybe it got a lucky ricochet. You know, maybe that dude was just really on point for that one shot. And it's just like, keep the game moving. You know, save as D&D. You don't want to, you don't want to rules lawyer it too much. Yeah. Leave the rules lawyering for rules court. Rules court. That's a game we should make. Comes a little squeaky gavel. So, yeah. Advanced Squad Leader. It's fun. Advanced Squad Leader. When your squads are advanced. So on this show, we have a segment that we call Board Game Corner. And today, since we've talked about a very complicated game for the main show, we're going to talk about a very simple board game, and that is Codenames. Codenames is a sort of light party game for four plus people. It's a, the core premise is that you are spies trying to communicate information to your agents 
by giving them vague clues, and then they have to select the words that match those clues. Um, in this case, there is a grid. I believe it's six by six. Might be more than that. I'm just going off memory here. You lay out a grid of cards, each of which has a word on it. Uh, then the spy masters. There's you split. There's two teams, uh, red and blue. The spy masters for the team have a little sheet that indicates which of the cards belongs to each of them, and which of them are just neutral, and which one is a bomb that kills everybody and you lose if you select it. Then they take turns saying a word and a number indicating to their teammates who can't see this little thing that says which cards are theirs. Um, they say the word and the number of how many of the cards on the table are related to the word they just said. And then the team has to guess and try to get all of their cards, you know, marked off. It's very fun. It's quite silly because you get things like people seeing a bunch of things out there and trying to link them up. I once used the word space to link needle, as in the space needle, and also Jupiter because it's a planet in space. Nice. And there's a whole bunch of different things. You sometimes run into differences in interpretation where I say the word uh, electric and you go, ha, you must mean eel. And I go, uh, no, I meant current and resistance. Current kills. Depending on how, how well you know your team, it can play out very differently. Um, I was in a game once where someone made a very specific Star Wars reference that clearly marked out three things. Unfortunately for them, their teammate was not a Star Wars nerd. <laughs> Whoops. So that those three things that so the word they said meant nothing. So yeah, knowing your team is helpful. Uh, to having a wide, having a good ability to interpret and kind of know what your team is going to guess is, I suppose, the real, the real key to victory. What was the Star Wars keyword they used? Dathomir. It's familiar, but it's not ringing any bells. It's the planet of the Force Witches. Oh, yes. It was supposed to get, I think, planet, witches, and force were the three keywords that it would have linked to. That's a, that's a hard one. Yeah, if, if you don't know what it is, it makes no sense. You're like, I have, what's Dathomir? I don't know this. If you know it and you know what it's from, you think planet. Okay, there's planet. You think witch. There's witch. You think force. There's force. And you've just gotten three things in 10 seconds. It, it's a great keyword. As long as you know for a fact that your teammate knows Star Wars. Teammate forgot his one-time pad. Couldn't decode that one. Yeah, essentially. Um, the art for it is good. The box is pretty cheap. It's like 20, 25 bucks. It's a great party game. And with COVID restrictions basically over now, when people doing board game parties and stuff, I recommend it for that. Yeah, code names. You can find it pretty much anywhere. Woo, board games.
yeah, and that's Board Game Corner, and with it, our show. I've been Troy, with me, as always, is Ed. If you want more Knoll Country, we have 20 other episodes of this show out already. And you can find us on social media. We're on Twitter at, at Knoll Country and Instagram at Knoll Country. You can like or rate this, this podcast on whatever platform you listen to it in order to let other people know that it's good. Um, Ed, anything you want to promote here? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Animadness as I slowly crawl out of an existential spiral. And as soon as Instagram will let me post again, because it's been weird lately. Um, go ahead and support some uh, Ukrainian charities. If you're of the hobby mindset, you can go to Fallout Hobbies, BrutalCities.com, or Reptilian Overlords. They're all doing uh, Ukrainian charity events where you can uh, buy some either STL files or some models. And uh, they'll either send all or a portion of the cash you give them to... Uh, some support organizations to help the Ukrainians and join a union as long as it's not a Soviet union and go Knowles. That's about all I got. My voice is tired. Yeah. You've done a lot of talking. Uh, yeah. In addition to those things, support your local game store. And, um, I guess unless they're in the Soviet union, in which case we should, we should do, look up Soviet board games and games and Soviet culture and do an episode on that. That would be very interesting. All right, I'll put that down. We'll, we'll see about doing that. I've read a lot about Soviet video games. Uh, I don't know as much about Soviet board games, though. So I have also played Tetris. Reading Ahoy. We will start looking into Soviet board games for you. Yay. Because we care about our listeners. Yes, we do. Go Knowles. Go Knowles!